Well, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And what I'd like to look at tonight is the uh, portion beginning in verse 5 down through verse 18. Now, um, we'll see how far we get. Maybe a little ambitious because it's, it's a very powerful section. But just to kind of, before we move into the, the section here, just to remind us of what we've seen already in Hebrews in chapter 1 down through 2-4, right? That how did, how did the, the writer of Hebrews begin his letter? For what we looked at on, on Sunday morning and evening. What, what, was his, what was his main thrust of what he's trying to communicate there in chapter 1? That's right, brother. Good. That God has spoken. And He's spoken in the Old Testament, which these Hebrew Christians would have been very familiar with, and which Gentile Christians and Hebrew Christians today should be pretty familiar with. But in the first century, of course, that's long before the printing press, right? So people didn't have Bibles to sit on their laps. <laughs> there, there, there were very few copies of the Scriptures, and not a lot of people knew many of the teachings of the Old Testament. They just got what they got from the rabbis or from the, their time in the synagogue that they went every Sabbath. And so he reminds them, God has spoken through the prophets. And don't forget, the prophets go all the way back. Abraham was considered a prophet of God. Moses was a prophet. Those who, any of the ones who wrote scriptures would be considered prophets, right? And God spoke through them. But in these last days... He's spoken particularly through His Son. So He's trying to, in a dramatic way, indicate that as, as wonderful as the Old Testament revelation of God is, right? He, he reveals so much of Himself and about His Son in the Old Testament. The privilege of the fact He's saying to these Hebrew Christians and to us, since we're in the same era, the church age, as them, that, that He's spoken in the person of his son his son came and, and revealed God in a way that that superabounds anything that went previously but doesn't displace what went previously right because he's going to quote all these Old Testament scriptures there in chapter 1 those 7 we looked at Sunday night to validate the glory of the son in terms of his second coming Right, the first few verses in chapter one, his first coming, from verse five down through verse fourteen, his second coming, and then in chapter two, one through four, he gives that exhortation: "Be careful, lest what? That lest you drift away, lest you not respond to the things you've heard." See, God is speaking. Is anybody listening? Right? That's the idea. God is speaking, but is anybody, and in our world, fewer and fewer are listening, right? But to the Christians, it's even especially alarming. If Christians aren't listening to God speaking, you know, there's a huge disconnect somewhere, right? Because we're His children, and, and, and He wants us to know about Himself and about His plans and what He wants us to be doing now and what we'll be doing in the future and all of that. He wants us to know. He's, he's gone to a lot of trouble to preserve His Word down through the centuries. And so He gives that exhortation that if we're not growing in the Scriptures on a consistent, regular basis as believers, we are probably already drifting. That's this, the scene of what He's painting, painting in verses 1-4 through four of chapter 2 lest we drift if we neglect so great a salvation as this that his son would pay the penalty for our sins that's the salvation he's talking about right because he said that in verse 3 chapter 1 how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation think of it now we haven't, we're here. <laughs> we haven't neglected that salvation. That's part of why we're here, right? But think of it in terms of how many people that we know, relatives, friends that we've witnessed to, that are still in the 
place of neglection. They're still neglecting so great a salvation that God's Son. Now, we, I said in the way of, uh, for dramatic effect on Sunday night, and if you picked up on it and asked me when I said about, uh, you know, it's that the Lord Jesus Himself would come and give Himself, that He didn't delegate that to someone else. And of course, He couldn't delegate that to anyone else because there wasn't anyone else holy enough to, to take that place, right? God is holy, and therefore, for us to have fellowship with Him, come in, come in. Um, for us to have fellowship with Him, the sacrifice for our sins has to be as holy as God is. So, that is why his son is the only one who could make the payment. That's why it couldn't be delegated to an archangel and anyone else. Everybody with me on that? And, and we could safely say that God's holiness demands nothing less than the cross of Jesus Christ. You agree with that? You agree with that God is so holy that any other method that we as human beings sinful creatures might come up with and that's what man-made religions are doing, right? They're trying to say, well, yeah, but Lord, you're merciful and so you should accept a lesser sacrifice than the cross. He's saying, wait a minute, I paid the penalty. I sent my son. Look at how he suffered. Look at how he died. And for you to say that there's a substitutionary way to come to me besides that after I've already paid that penalty, God's not pleased with that, right? Okay, brother. Um, you, regarding neglecting the, the great salvation, this is written, you said, to Hebrew believers. Right. Right. It's not written to unbelievers. Right. Well, but now the application. Did you make just make an application about some that neglect that are are, are lost, or about by neglecting it? They're no, no. Good, good question. What I said Sunday, and I didn't maybe say clearly just now. It's not Hebrews is not written to a church, right? It's not a church in Corinth where Paul says, I'm writing to the believers in Corinth or I'm writing to the believers in Thessalonica. This is a nation group, Hebrew Christians. So therefore, as we see through all the way through the letter, the when he's referring to his audience, it is a mixed multitude. Like in the wilderness, in numbers, right? A mixed multitude. There are believers in this group. There are those that are believers that are out of fellowship in this group. There are those that are right on the threshold of becoming believers, but haven't become believers yet. And then there are unbelievers who have left or are thinking about leaving Christ to go back to the temple. Something that that we can't relate to because you can't do that now. You could you could do that before 70 A.D., which is this letter was written before 70 A.D. After 70 A.D., they couldn't go back to the temple. But but this particular generation he's writing to is in a unique position. They're in a in an overlap, right? There's a there's a 40 year overlap from 30 A.D. to 70 A.D. where you have the church as God's testimony in the world, and you still have the the temple. Now God rent the veil in 30 AD, but it's still standing and priests, I don't think they're Levitical priests, right? They're the Sadducees who have taken over the priesthood, but they are offering animal sacrifices on an altar and they think they're pleasing God. Plus, the temple, don't forget, was the welfare system for the nation of Israel. The temple storehouses were used to take care of orphans, widows, and other people in need in terms of food and clothing. That was all instituted by the Lord. And so to leave that system and identify with Messiah, Jesus Christ, would be to leave your welfare system and now the church is going to have to be the ones, the believers, or they're going to be there to take care of you. He talks about that in this letter, doesn't he? So that would be a proper statement then to say if I'm addressing unbelievers... How shall we escape? That's right. If we neglect so great a salvation. But then, as you said, in terms of application to believers, we can say not in the sense of neglect in terms of uh, conversion, but in terms of ongoing growth, 
are we neglecting going on in growth as Christians, right? Both would be, that would be the application for us as believers. So what would the escaping be then? Uh, Escaping fruitfulness and reward. Excellent. Right. Which he talks about, right, in in chapter 6 and chapter 10. Everybody up to speed on that so far? Good question. That's part of what we want to do tonight. Well, one of the things... I'll just, I'll just, I want, this is a little bit of a detour uh, from what we want to cover in Hebrews chapter 2, but often when I teach Hebrews, I, I like to point this out. If you'll go back to the book of Acts in chapter 21, you remember that the Apostle Paul was leaving Europe and making his his last trip to Jerusalem. And remember, he's taking a gift to the saints in Jerusalem. Are there any more seats over here? Because if y'all need, I think there are a few more chairs over here. If, if y'all need, so you don't have to be standing. And these are the cushion chairs. That's all right. I'm not going to go as long as Paul did. Where the brother fell out the window anyway, but uh, it still helps to have a chair to sit. <laughs> but but just to give a little bit of understanding of, of why the the perhaps why this is somewhat speculative, but but it's based on some scriptures here, just to kind of give give a little perspective on why the letter of Hebrews was written and possibly who wrote it. Okay, in Acts chapter twenty one. You remember that the Apostle Paul is coming to Jerusalem and Jamel and I and Jimmy were talking at the dinner table how, you remember, he, he had taken a Nazarite vow in Sincrea and then he comes and he is going to make the payment on that vow when he comes to Jerusalem along with some others that he brought there. And they were saying, why is he following this Old Testament Nazarite vow when we're, he, Paul knows we're under the new covenant now. And my answer would be 1 Corinthians 9. You know, he's trying to reach, being all things to all men, he's trying to reach the Jews. He knows the vow, is, and it doesn't hurt, the vow's not going to hurt him today. It wouldn't hurt for anyone to take a Nazarite vow now. It won't hurt you, it's between you and the Lord. So Paul comes here, and you remember, excuse me, James, you know, in, in beginning in verse uh, 13. Verse 15. And after those days we packed up and went to Jerusalem. You see Luke is with them when, when we see the, the we there. And and they they go down you know from Caesarea and we come to Jerusalem. The brethren received us gladly. Verse 17. And then on verse 18, the following day, Paul went up, with, went up to James. Now James, this would be James, the half-brother of our Lord. And all the elders were present. And when he grieved them, he told in detail, Paul did, those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. In Europe. The gospel had gone to Europe. It had gone to Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, and, and these other Illyricum and these other places. And he's saying, look at the, the response to the gospel. And they're all listening, you know, here in Jerusalem. And when they heard it, This is an important verse, verse 20. When they heard it, they glorified the Lord, so far so good, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews who have believed here in Jerusalem, and they are all zealous for the glory of Christ. Is that what it says? Who are we supposed to be zealous for? First and foremost is believers. See, James says, look at all these Christians here in Jerusalem and they're zealous for the law. And many believe, and I think you can make a good case for the fact that Paul heard that. Remember, he goes into, gets gets arrested in the next chapter, spends two years in house arrest in Caesarea. And according to Eusebius, the historian, the Christian historian of the 300 time of Constantine, so around the 300s AD, he writes that while Paul was in Caesarea from from 58 to 60 AD, right? Before he goes to Rome, that's when he wrote Hebrews. And 
very likely he remember what James said they're all zealous for the law and Hebrews is showing why they need to be zealous for Christ that's the whole thrust of Hebrews right Christ has fulfilled the law the law has been he uses very strong language right set aside by God and a new and better way has come so you need to change your zeal to being zealous for Christ in the new covenant right and that's the whole thrust he wrote. And of course, if he's writing to the Hebrew Christians, Paul is, what language is he going to write the scriptures in? Greek? Latin? Hebrew. Hebrew. Not even Aramaic, probably. Probably Hebrew. Because you remember, that's what silenced the crowd when they all gathered and they were about to kill him there on the Temple Mount. And the Roman guards came down and protected him. And... And the crowd, as soon as he began, he said, let me speak to you, brother. And he does it in Hebrew. And all of a sudden they get quiet. And then until he, he mentions the word Gentile, and blow, the, the riot goes right back, right? So he would have written it. Eusebius tells... Now, Eusebius is not a reliable historian in everything. And he thought Constantine was was the greatest. And I don't think Constantine... There's, there's, I don't think there's enough evidence to indicate Constantine was even a believer. But that's another whole discussion, right? But... He says that that uh, that Paul wrote it in Hebrews, wrote in Hebrew, and Luke was led by the Holy Spirit then, his traveling companion, to translate it into Greek, and that's how we have the Greek version. Because so many Greek scholars, when they study Hebrews, they they look and they say, yeah, but the the Greek in Hebrews is not Pauline. It's not like Paul's style in his letters. Well, that's because it was written in Hebrew and translated into Greek to make it the Holy Spirit put it on Luke's ark. This is a wonderful letter to the Hebrews, but the whole church could be edified by this one. Let's put it in Greek. And of course, it was included in the early canons of the New Testament and, and considered part of Scripture. Interesting speculation, but it, uh, I, I think it's, it's a fairly reliable one. I, I also heard the internal evidence, too, that it could be Paul that the just shall live by faith that quote from that's right. in the Old Testament but the just is Romans uh, shall live is Galatians by faith you, you see that term in uh, that's Hebrews right. and that's of course it. all of them are in there but that's good, right? I guess you can't really say for sure right? I mean, no. it doesn't follow his type of writing at all no um, but there is a lot of Pauline type language uh, he makes reference to Timothy I mean there there are there's probably about eight or nine internal evidences in addition to the one that you mentioned, that's right. But that's that's not what we're going to try to accomplish tonight. But I just thought it'd be interesting, uh, given the discussion we had at the dinner table tonight, to point that out uh, for you to think about it. But but certainly in Acts 21, verse 20, the fact that the early Jewish Christians were still zealous for the law, they were still missing something about Christ in the New Covenant. And that's what this letter is set to explain. But in the process, we're not Hebrew Christians, most of us. Few of us are, right? And when we rejoice in that, that's when a completed Jew, right? But uh, but for those of us who are Gentile Christians, we can enter into the value of this too because we've been brought into the same new covenant. And we have the same high priest. And we have, can experience a lot of the same difficulties, especially now, this many years into the history of the church, that they experience. So that... I spent more time on introduction there than I planned to. Sorry about that. Time, that, that clock just... Does that go faster? Maybe you just oiled it. <laughs> so, picking up in chapter 2, verse 5, now he picks up with the story. He picks up right where he left off in one fourteen. That's what tells us 2, 1 through 4. It, it It's very easy to see. 2, 1 through 4 is kind of a... You know, he, he gets off the discussion that he's making to give an exhortation. Now he moves right back. He's going to pick up right with, what did he leave off with in chapter 1, verse 14? Angels, right? And he had already demonstrated in chapter 1, 5 through 13 how Jesus Christ is so much better than the angels. We talked on Sunday why he brought in angels here. Anybody remember what we said? Why does he introduce angels here in chapter 1? Because the law, as he tells us in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 2 of chapter 2, the law was given through the ministry of angels. So, 
He had just been talking in chapter 1 about the Old Testament revelation, right? God had spoken through the prophets and part of that revelation was the law and it was through angels and so there was a tendency apparently among Hebrew Christians in the first century to still think that, yeah, wow, that's great I have the Bible but I'd rather have the angels. I'd rather have an angel give me something. I'd rather have a visit from an angel, right? <laughs> He'll even talk about that in chapter 13 of this letter, won't he? But he's telling them, you have the Son and you have the Word of God and you have the Holy Spirit illuminating the Word of God. You have everything you need. You don't need angels. Why would you, if you have the Son, why would you go down to a creature? The Son is superior. Why would you go to someone lesser to put your faith and trust in when you've got the Son? Why would you pray to angels to, Oh Lord, guard me with angels tonight as I drive to the gills in this horrible rainstorm. When you have the Son as your high priest at the Father's right hand who has all power to help you and is there ready to give grace to help in time of need. You see the argument? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Why would you go to the lesser when you've got the greater? He's given it to you. It's not like you have to plead with Him. He wants to give you grace, but He wants us to ask him for it, right? That's in chapter 4. So, he says, for he, God, it's interesting, you know, he, he just picks up right with where he was in chapter 1. He has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. That's why, of course, in chapter 1, 5 through 13, all these quotations are talking about the kingdom time frame, aren't they? So that's the world to come. And that's the world to come. That, that's, that's why he's saying it this way. That's a validation to me, but the, but the quotations themselves are a validation because every one of them is dealing with when he comes to reign and that he's the ruler and that all that is the nations and the possession and inheritance that's been given to him. But he's not put that world to come in subjection to angels. Now he's going to transition to Christ's humanity. He focused on his deity, his divinity, first in chapter 1, which would be appropriate. But now he's going to change and say, why did Messiah have to become man? You ever wondered why? That's what he's going to answer here in chapter 2. He's going to begin to answer, because he'll keep on answering it. And this is fascinating. And where do you think he's going to go from the Old Testament? He's going to go to Psalm 8. Which is kind of interesting in a couple of ways. The fact that it's the 8th Psalm and 8 is the number of the resurrection and regeneration and this is the 8th quotation after the 7 in chapter 1. It's kind of interesting but some of the commentaries say that the Jewish rabbis in the 1st century did not even consider the 8th Psalm to be messianic. So the Hebrew Christians he's writing, if that's true, and I don't know, you know, they're basing that probably on some rabbinical writings, evidence that they have, and if it's true, for him to go to Psalm 8, now I can tell you this, if, if reading through the scriptures as we do and getting familiar with it, I don't think Psalm 8 would have been the first place I would have thought of to go to to validate his humanity. So it's interesting that we see the, the thinking and mind of God. Psalm 8 is a Davidic psalm, right? David is out in the Judean wilderness, very likely, it seems like. It says it's written on the instrument of Gath, so it could be even the fact that he brings in Gath, that, of course, Goliath was from Gath, right? He was a Gittite. And so it could be right after he slew Goliath, and he was probably 16 years old when that happened, when he wrote this Psalm 8. We know he was a musician already, was writing, and a poet, and was writing uh, music even at that age, right? Because he plays for Saul. But here he's in the Judean wilderness where it's pitch dark. He's watching his father's Jesse's sheep, right? And he looks up at the stars. Well, let's look at it. Psalm 8 in the, in the, the Old Testament. He looks up 
at the stars and he begins to see how small he as man is compared to this massive creation we find ourselves in. And he begins and ends it with that great phrase, O Lord, our Lord, O Jehovah, our Adonai, how excellent is your name in all the earth. And that's how he ends it, right? You see that in verse 9? How excellent, so twice, the excellence. What was it, you remember in chapter 1, verse 4? About the Lord Jesus compared to angels? That he has inherited, he's superior to the angels because he has inherited what? A more excellent name. And what is he saying here? How excellent is your name? <laughs> you see the, the unity of, of, of his thinking here? And he says, Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. And of course, our Lord Jesus quotes that verse in Matthew 21, 16, when the religious leaders were saying, These children here in the temple, they're all singing Hosanna to the Son of David. Tell them to be quiet. He says, Oh, no. Oh, those children are saying the right thing. <coughs> Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you've ordained praise. They're praising me because I'm God. The children recognize I'm God and you don't. He says to the religious leaders. And then David says in verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, all it took was his fingers to make those heavens. You realize that the scientists today Keep, they say they're discovering new galaxies further and further out in this massive universe we look up and see in the stars. I think, I think it's more of a spiral than, than a linear type of a universe, but that's another argument in itself. But I think they're seeing the same galaxy. They think they're seeing new ones. But anyway, it's still massive. It's still, it's still enormous. He says, and I look up, and of course in the Judean wilderness, you can see the Milky Way galaxy, and you can see it, it is to it's still totally dark. There are no street lights on the road down to Masada from, from Jerusalem into the Judean wilderness. The moon and the stars which you have ordained, including the supermoon we saw this weekend, compared to that, what is little man? What is man that you are mindful of Him and the Son of Man, that you visit Him. Okay, I wanted to go back to the psalm. That's where the quotation starts. We can go back then to uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews. But you see, that's the context. And that you see how important it sets up what He's going to do here in chapter 2. What is man? That's the question. That you are mindful of Him or the Son of Man, that you take care of Him. Why is man such an important part, O oh Lord, of your creation? You ever wondered that? Am I that important to God? Does He even notice me as an individual? What is man? And of course, that's humankind, man and woman, right? What is man? And then He goes on to say in verse 7, You have made Him a little lower than the angels. That's man. Angels, creatures. He's talked about them in chapter 1. Man, creature, in God's creation also. You have made man a little lower than the angels. But then he says, now this is David writing in 1000 B.C. He wasn't a caveman. I mean, this is an awesome revelation he's getting. And if he's doing it right after Goliath, he's still a teenager when he's writing this. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Has he? And you have set him over the works of your hands. You've heard the phrase dominion, mandate. And that's going back to what? Scripture. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28, right? And that dominion mandate there tells man and woman what? That God has set them over. And that's what the word dominion means. Rulership. 
He has given them stewardship of what? The rest of humankind? Includes that. But but how much more? The fishes of the sea, all the creatures, He lists them all, right? In other words, God made man as the dominion ruler steward over the entire earth. That was God's plan. And that's why I believe in Revelation it tells us that we will reign with Christ. We in the church will reign with Him on the earth. I'm not interested, all due respect, but I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't get a feeling for an excitement about playing a harp and floating on a cloud for all eternity. That, that doesn't. I'm a creature made for earth. I like trees, rivers, fish, animals, God's creation. That's how, and, and it helps us, it makes it a more concrete picture of what we're going to be doing in our glorified bodies to remind ourselves of that, I think. We're not going to be floating out in oblivion. Man was made for the earth. Psalm 115 tells us that, right? Man was made for the earth. God was made for the heavens. God not made, but God dwells in the heavens, is what he says. And so he, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. Which is kind of interesting because what was the quotation of verse 13 of chapter 1 out of Psalm 110? Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies what? Your footstool under your feet. And remember, this is in the concept, again, we're, we think in a Western mind, the Eastern mind, they still have monarchs there, right? In the monarchy in the Eastern world, they sat on a throne that was elevated so that anyone that came into the room where the palace was, where the throne was, was never looking down to the king. The king you had to look up to the king. So he was elevated and there was a footstool that he would put his feet on because his feet weren't long, his legs weren't long enough to reach all the way down to that floor with the throne sitting up. And the idea of being under his feet would be under his rulership, dominion. That's what that picture conveys. And then, that's the quotation, right, from Psalm 8. Now, the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, expounds upon that quotation. By the way, this we see the principle of expository preaching as we see how it how, it's, how it occurs right here in the New Testament. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he has left nothing that is not put under him. Sounds logical, right? If all is in subjection, nothing is not in subjection. But now we do not yet see all things put under man's dominion. That was true in the first century. It's still true, isn't it? We look, we, I mean... I go over to a, a lion in Kenya and I look at him in the eye and say, sit down here next to me. He's not going to do what I ask him to do. He's probably going to take my head off. But there's coming a time when that's going to happen, according to Isaiah 11, right? And that's the way it was when Adam named all the animals. That was another aspect of his dominion. And they were submitted to him. We lost that in the curse in the fall. But now we do not yet, but that not yet tells us something glorious is coming. And then for the first time in the in the book, he tells us who the the Son is he's been referring to, but we see Jesus. Now isn't that interesting the technique? He doesn't mention Jesus. It goes all the way through those quotations. Chapter 1 refers to the Son. And now, why did He do it that way? Because He is focusing now upon His humanity. Jesus is His earthly human name. Christ is His Messiah, is His heavenly title. Lord is God. That's who He is. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. But when they refer to the writers in the New Testament, refer to Him particularly in terms of His humanity. They use often his name Jesus, right? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, not made in terms of creation, but in terms of position, he submitted himself to being in a place a little lower than the angels. 
Now stop and think of that right by itself. That's what we call his condescension. We see that, Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, right? Where though he is equal with God, he thought it not robbery to be equal, but humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a servant, becoming man. Now, why did he do that? That's what he's answering in this chapter. The, the quick answer is, he did it for you and me. You say, the God of this universe that David was writing about in Psalm 8, he is that concerned about little people like us? Yeah, he is. And he wants us to be concerned about more little people <laughs> like our neighbors. What comes through in this chapter is the dignity of man as a creature, a, a teaching, a doctrine that Satan hates. Satan took away, apparently there, there's, there's part of this, this whole thing when Satan was, was a creature, but he was at the throne of God, one of the anointed cherubim, right? We read about the cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1 that guarded the throne of God there and, and, and Satan, Lucifer, was in that position and he wasn't content with his position in life. He wanted more. He wanted to be God. He wanted to be equal with God. He wanted to tell God what to do just like many human beings like want to do today. Especially in our universities. A lot of these professors, right? Who claim they know more than God and claim they know more than we Christians know when they believe all their evolutionary ideas and philosophies. Don't be intimidated by it. The dignity of man, especially for those of us who are born again, in God's eyes, is enormous. And we've been brought into this privileged fellowship, and that's why we're to hold each other in such high regard in that fellowship. The dignity. We are princes and princesses because we're children of the king. And you wouldn't talk lightly about princes and princesses in the earthly realm, would you? If you were in a realm where there was a king, you wouldn't do that for fear of your life. How much more should we in God's realm? That's who we are. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. Why? For this, the emphasis here in chapter 2 is going to be for the propitiation, for the suffering of death. We see him now crowned with glory and honor. So his humiliation, the suffering of death, and his exaltation brought right together, just like they are in Philippians 2 5 through 11, right? He who humbled himself, God had highly exalted him given a name above every name, right? Crowned with glory and honor. Now, in Psalm 8, do you think that's what David was thinking? Well, we don't know. But we know that the Holy Spirit was thinking that when he put the words in David's mind because he put the author of Hebrews in his mind to clarify this teaching that when David wrote that, he was writing about Messiah. Whether David understood it or not is not an issue, not a point. We, get, we won't know until we ask him. But he was writing about man initially, right? Mankind. What do you mean initially? <laughs> in, in the song, right? Where you just went through all that. Well, what is what is he saying? Yeah, right. right. You're saying Both. Okay. Right, because he would have thought of creation, right? I mean, of course, it's the Holy Spirit. I mean, even from the beginning, there was this idea of redemption that would come through a seed and undo everything that was done. Yeah, and, that's right. Uh, and of course we don't know at what age David wrote this so we don't know if he wrote it before or after the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 which is where that idea would have really got clear to him uh, we know he knew it, know it then and after that but prior to that he might have too we don't know we just we can't say it's an argument from silence but, uh, but we know what was in the mind of God in Psalm 8 the writer here tells us you see 
how when we study the scripture and we see what we're we're looking for the mind of God when we study the scripture we're looking for one interpretation there's only one interpretation that's the right one God's when God communicates His Word to man, He's not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to play games with us. He has one thought in His mind. Just like if I'm trying to communicate with you, I'm not trying to have multiple dimensions of interpretation when I talk to you. I mean one thing. And, it, and, if, and if it doesn't get across to you, then there are no, no communications taking place, right? If you didn't understand what I meant when I said trunk, right? I said go out and meet me by the trunk. If you didn't understand whether that meant go to the zoo and stand by the elephant's <laughs> exhibit or stand by the car in the parking lot or stand by a tree. If you didn't know that, then communication didn't take place, right? You're not going to know where to go. So it's very important. And we that doesn't mean that we all always arrive at that interpretation. We're seeking to. And there's a methodology of validation. We've talked about that previously in our methodical Bible study. There's a validation we go through to validate from the Scriptures that we're at the right in interpretation. That's because we want to honor the Lord. It's His Word and it's His thinking. It's His mind. So, our Lord, for the suffering of death, He's talking about the cross, crowned with glory and honor, in order that He, the Lord, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And at the end of the chapter, in verse 18, when He talked, or verse 17, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's what the word propitiation means. Propitiation means that the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God for everyone. If it was only for certain ones, like Calvinism says, then we wouldn't know who to preach the gospel to. But the Bible tells us that we're to preach the gospel to everyone because the propitiation is available. The sacrifice doesn't mean that they're saved because if it did, then this verse, verse 9, would be teaching universal salvation. But it's interesting. Verse 10 helps to clarify that for us because you notice while he says everyone in verse 9, he uses the word many in verse 10. Uh, okay. The propitiation, the availability of forgiveness of sins, it's available to everyone. But there are only many who receive it because they ask for it. You see the distinction? You see how why we can teach the sovereignty of God and human responsibility and the Bible teaches them both together? We don't have to put them opposed to each other? We want to honor God. We want to honor God's teaching with regard to the dignity of man. Man has responsibility. If we take that responsibility element away from man, then many people will go to hell and perish because they didn't understand that they needed to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Many of them thought, well, I, I just wasn't the elect. So that's why I, it's not my fault. It's God's fault. He didn't make me the elect and that's why I'm going to hell. You heard people say that? I've heard people say that. And it was because they were told the wrong gospel. The anathema gospel, Paul calls it in Galatians chapter 1, right? So he says, then, so that's the first nine verses. And then beginning in verse 10 down to verse 16, he begins to now focus upon our Lord's brethren. What he has done for those who have trusted in him. For it was fitting... That word fitting would be it was in keeping with the character of God. It was fitting. It was in keeping with His character for whom are all things and by whom are all things. And I believe in the context while that could be referring to God very likely He's referring to the Lord Jesus because He's already said He created all things in chapter 1, right? He's through whom He created the worlds. Right? So it's fitting for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. He's been crowned with glory and honor already. Now, what's His purpose? To bring many sons and daughters. Okay, the idea is, is human beings to glory 
to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. <laughs> now this word captain, one of my favorite words for the Lord, archegos. Think of that. It occurs again in chapter 12, verse 2, where he talks about the author and finish the same word. It should be translated the same way, captain. And and it's it's the idea of one who goes before, right? But he also it's it's the idea of taking someone by the hand, not only going before, but taking by the hand and leading them out and taking the lead. You know, in the in David's day. In the Old Testament days, when an army went out to battle, the king went where? He was right at the front. He led them like a shepherd leads the flock of the sheep. Today, when we think of the word captain, where do we think where's the captain? Well, he's back at CENTCOM. He's back at headquarters behind a, a heavy wall and the soldiers were all out there <laughs> putting their life on the line. He's not out there with them. So you see how we got to, we want to study these words and make sure we, if we would, the word captain would connote to us. Well, he's he's back there giving commands on the radio. But but in the first century and in the tenth century B.C. when David wrote that that captain went out before. Someone has said I haven't researched this to to prove it for myself, but I heard one preacher say that the. <coughs> The word archegos was also used of, of a, a sailor on a ship during a storm and, and the ship was trying to get into harbor during the storm that this was one, a sailor that would jump out in the water with the rope tied to the front of the ship and he would swim to, sh to some place where he could anchor the rope. He would go out ahead before them to bring them safely through the storm and save the ones that were on the ship. That's a good picture too. So this is what our Lord has done. He's gone through death and conquered death by dying. Now, fascinating how God... I think that's amazing. God, well, how am I going to conquer... There are a lot of ways God could conquer death. He chooses to conquer death by death and by the death of His Son. I, I have a question on this. Um, so ten, the first verse, fitting for him. Would that mean? Um, would that be God? Could it be God the Father? Because if you look at the punctuation, the thoughts, if you take out the the two commas, it says for fitting for him to to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. So it seems like it would be God the Father, it and could. the author of their salvation is the Lord. Yeah, that's Jesus. right. And we don't like to. We don't want to make too big a division in the in the Trinity and the Godhead anyway, right? So whatever right, the right. Son's doing, the God God the Father's doing. I mean, they're united; it could be both. That's right. That's right. And many, you know, some take the side that it's the Father and some the Son, and then some both, right? But uh, but it was but the Son who he's went through the suffering. That's so right. That's the key. That, right? That's the key thought there. That's right. And it was the, I mean, it was the Father that's you know presented it and said, "Lord, I've come to do Thy will." That's so right. it was there was some kind of thing in our mind that we understand that that's right. it was His will that He was fulfilled. That's right. Even that's though they're united as one. You know? Amen. That's in chapter 10, right? That's where He quotes Psalm 40. And what's the significance of made perfect? Yeah, how do you make the perfect perfect? That was my next question. <laughs> <laughs> I always thought made perfect was bringing to an end, like bringing something to its goal. Um, well, it can, that word teleos can mean that. It can mean bringing to maturity. It can be meaning to bringing to its goal. Uh, it, the tetelestai, it is finished, he says on the cross, is a form of teleos. Uh, and so that's bringing to completion uh, the, the suffering aspect ministry of the Lord. It's not the end of our Lord's ministry because he goes on as high priest, right? But it's the end of the suffering part. He finishes the suffering part. There's no more of his suffering. He's not going to suffer ever again. <laughs> He's in glory now, right? That part's finished. But to make perfect through sufferings. Well, our Lord in his pre-incarnate state, before he came as man, that's what incarnation means, right? So in his pre-incarnate state, had he ever suffered? No. Had he ever suffered as a man? In fact, he couldn't have. 
So, being perfected in the sense of, as he'll go on to explain, really the rest of the letter is going to expand on that, in, in his role as high priest. By becoming man, then we, it helps our faith to recognize that, wow, God has experienced sufferings like we experience on planet earth like we where we live he's come down to where we live and he's experienced sufferings like not the same because he's in a sinless body and we're not right but he's experienced those sufferings he'll go on to talk about he was even exposed to temptation never yielding to it but he was exposed to temptation so he can help us he can it, it helps our faith to recognize I mean for a deity that is unseen that's in the heavens that you know that we say well, well yeah he's in the third heaven where there's no sin he doesn't know anything about my problems how can he be a faithful high priest to me why, why should I go to him in prayer in my trials and temptations and difficulties he can't relate to me right that's how our minds will think and you maybe have thought that in your trials and difficulties I have and so that's part of the perfection. We uh, I uh, oh, sorry, I read from William McDonald, and I do like how he explained this because we were talking earlier. Yes. Because um, in chapter five and verse nine it says, "And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him." Yes. So how did you make the perfect man perfect? Which is what we're talking about again. Yes. And William McDonald explains that he he wasn't made perfect. It was through his suffering, just like you saying, that he became the perfect sacrifice. And it was perfect because he died and rose again. Amen. And I would add to that, that he, he it was made perfect as the, the sacrifice, which is part of it. It also is perfect as high priest. Right. Follow, his ministry that follows the sacrifice. And both of them are linked to priesthood, right? Sacrifice in, uh, in his current session as our advocate and intercessor. Okay, now... We were already at 8.30. <laughs> so, you want me to say a few more things about the chapter, or, or take your... Uh, we go maybe five more... I'll say a few more things. Five more minutes? Because I know you all have schedules. We're trying to honor your schedules. But it, this is such a powerful chapter. And what I really wanted to do, and, and I'm sorry I didn't get to it, because he, the, the best part we haven't even got to. The best part of this chapter... We haven't even got to. It's oh, the part. Night. Well, yeah, I was going to go into chapter three and four tomorrow night. <laughs> That's true. Maybe I'll have to change that. But let me just—I'll just whet our appetites, and you can go lay your head on your pillows tonight, thinking about this particular idea, because what he's going to move into now is talking about the many sons you and I. He's bringing to glory, and that begins in verse eleven. For both he who sanctifies the Lord, and those who are being sanctified, us, the many sons He's bringing to glory, are all of one. All of one. That's consistent with the body, the one body metaphor that Paul uses in, in his writings. For which reason He, the Lord Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brethren. You see, He has brought the dignity of mankind into a whole new reality by becoming man. And now He's taking us and bringing us into the same dignity. He's taken us from that low level that we were in bondage to sin, in bondage to corruption, in bondage to the devil and fear of death, as He goes on to talk about, and as a captain, he's taken us by the hand, opened, he's opened that prison door we were in, unlocked it, and taken us, the Archegos has taken us by the hand, led us out of prison, and he's brought us into this position of sonship, whereby he says, your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, meditate on that son. And, then, and look what he quotes then. And that's why I wanted to look at these quotations because they're spectacular. But the first one in verse 12, I will declare your name to my brethren. 
They're not just brethren. He couldn't say, I will declare my name to the brethren or to the church. But he says, they're my brethren. I bought them. I died for them. And I'm now living to intercede for them. They're mine. And they're one with me. And I am sanctifying them. And they are being sanctified. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. You know what that's a quote from? Without looking at your margin? Of all things, Psalm 22. When we think of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's verse 1, right? And the first 21 verses of that psalm deal with his sufferings on the cross in a graphically pictorial way. Definitely messianic, and the rabbis knew that. You know, that they did know about Psalm 22. But then in verse 22, the second half of Psalm 22 is all his glory. So his humiliation and then his exaltation in Psalm 22. Did you know that? Did you think that Psalm 22 was just his humiliation? No, it's his humiliation and his exaltation. And this is the first verse that starts off the exaltation portion of this. He, he makes reference to this even in the upper room when he appears to his own, doesn't he? I will go to my God and your God, my Father, your Father. And again, I will put my trust in Him. Isaiah 8.17, very likely, although some believe it's a quote from Psalm, I mean, 2 Samuel 22.3. You may see that in your margin, but I think it's more likely 8.17 of Isaiah. And then 8.18 of Isaiah, Here am I and the children which God has given me. Well, I may, I'll pray about it overnight, and uh, I may want to come back to that tomorrow because it's so spectacular. But Isaiah 8 is, is I mean, we think of Isaiah 7, 14, the promise of the, the virgin that we sing at, in, quote, at Christmas time. In Isaiah chapter 9, which one of our, 9, 6, one of our young people quoted on Sunday, you know, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Wonderful Counselor. In between is Isaiah 8, and it's an important chapter too. And that's where this quotation is here. And the, and the context even makes it... What we see in verse 12, when we gather to remember our Lord in that remembrance meeting which we worship Him and focus on Him, you know who... We do have a pastor that's leading that meeting. Did you know that? You know, some people ask you, well, you don't have a pastor. Or we say, we don't have a pastor. We do have a pastor leading that meeting. Here he is. Here I am in the, in the, in the midst of and in the Septuagint of Psalm 22. That word is ecclesia. The word says assembly. It's church. In the midst of the church, I will sing praise to you. So our Lord is guiding us. He's putting the thoughts, hopefully, of the brethren that are calling out the hymns. And then He's leading the singing. To the Father and to Him. And that puts the, the Lord's Supper, in a, for me, in a whole, totally different light when I think of that. We talk about Him being in the midst. But He's not just sitting back. He's entering into the worship with us and guiding us in the worship, helping us in the worship, and then doing it. Because we're one with Him now. And then He'll go on to develop in verse 17 and 18, that great truth, that's where he first introduces the high priestly ministry that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the sacrifice part of his priesthood, right? And then he'll develop the other intercessory part later. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. You know what that word aid is? You look it up in, the, in your concordance. It's used in Acts 27 in a very pictorial way when they're, when they're in that, that storm, the Eurocladin, right? And, and they're trying to keep the ship from falling apart and they, they undergird, remember the belly of the ship? They take those ropes and the, well, the Cassidy, the shipman there, you'd understand, and undergird to keep the boards from coming apart in that storm. That's what... That's what that word is, the same word. So what is he? He is able to undergird, strengthen when we are being tempted and suffering and struggling and, and 
exasperated in difficulties and trial. He is able. Able is dunamis. It's power. He has the power to undergird us in our time. And He'll tell us in chapter 4, so let us go to Him then. Seek grace to help in time of need. Isn't He wonderful, our Lord Jesus? He's given everything we need for life and godliness in Him. And, and He wants to bring us through like Aaron and Moses in the priesthood it brought the children of Israel through the wilderness. He wants to bring us through. And we need Him. We need our high priest to make it. We can't make it on our own. Don't even try. You'll end up in an insane asylum. I know people that have tried to do it on their own. Probably some of them genuine Christians. And you will go crazy. You can't do it. The Bible doesn't tell you. God doesn't expect us to. So thank you, brethren, for coming out. Boy, in this kind of weather, you all have endured it to come out. I hope the Holy Spirit will bless your efforts in coming out. Just to be with the brethren is a blessing, but His Word, and especially this portion of Hebrews, I think, uh, sure makes me sleep a lot better at night. So, Brother Michael, maybe you'll close us in prayer. And I guess give thanks for the uh, refreshments too, right? I think this is...